This podcast is brought to you by Business Radio, powered by Wharton. Card carrying Basing at this point. Ben Alomar, Director of Sports Analytics at ESPN. You stood next to Big Poppy, be like, he's just one of us, man. <laughs> That's kind of a big deal and shows you a lot about the randomness of sports. Rick Peterson, longtime pitching coach for the major leagues. This is Warden Moneyball's post-game podcast. This is Kate Massey, host of Wharton Moneyball, and you're listening to our podcast. We air live on Business Radio Sirius XM Channel 132 every Wednesday, 8 to 10 Eastern. Enjoy this week's show. Guys, good morning to you. Good morning. Good morning. we got the whole crew here, Cade Massey hosting with all of my collaborators, all of my faculty colleagues here, Eric Bradlow to my left, Audie Weiner straight away, and Shane Jensen to my right in his usual Wednesday attire. <laughs> I'm nothing if not consistent. <laughs> That's a green... It, did, it was, Einstein was like that too, right? He only had the one outfit. And why like, couldn't you know, be I mean, bothered? Right. I mean, I just mean, simplifies life. I'm following that, in the That's how we think of you. Tradition of. It's a green warm-up jacket you might have worn in junior high basketball layup lines, if you're curious what yeah. it's wearing. We're going to be here for the next two hours. We're here, some combination of us anyway, are here every Wednesday morning for two hours live, 8 to 10 Eastern. You can join the conversation, and we wish you would. Give us a ring, 1-844-WHARTON, 1-844-942-7866. We're open lines for the next half hour, guys. It's a great time to... Ring us. You can also email us businessradio at siriusxm.com. Businessradio at siriusxm.com. You can email us live during the show. We'll take the notes. We'll also take them during the week if you're listening one of the times that it's not 8 to 10 a.m. Eastern on a Wednesday. It's a replay. Great way to reach out to us is by email. You can also hit us on Twitter. The handle up there is at WMoneyball, at WMoneyball. Send us your complaints, your observations, your praise, your questions, your suggestions for the over under segment at the end of the show. We have two great guests in our usual guest slots, bottom of this hour and the top of the next hour. Between now and then, gentlemen, I'm very curious, what has caught your eye in the world of sports? Well, we have to talk a little bit about college football, if well, not a I lot about should. college football. So let me play out things that I think that I understand right now, and of course Cade can correct me. I'm sure Massey Peabody has done some forecasts. I assume by the order right now going Alabama, Clemson, Notre Dame, Georgia, Oklahoma, and I could keep going, this implies the following. If Alabama beats Georgia, which is likely, but not certain, but let's say Alabama beats Georgia, and Oklahoma wins, and Clemson wins, then Ohio State is the one left out. There'd be no reason for them to put Oklahoma above Ohio State right now if Oklahoma wins that they wouldn't go ahead of Ohio State. Ah, uh, you know, it, Oklahoma could win on a fluky thing, and Ohio State could really. They could, big. but I. But I'm just saying, maybe, maybe that's reversal well, yeah, would happen. It's, it's to- but Oklahoma is also playing a much stronger that's right, team. That's right. In theory, it absolutely could be reversed, and it's happened before that in the last session, the last week, it's been reversed. It's just that this year sets up a little poorly for the reversal, given that Ohio State is playing a very unimpressive Northwestern team while Oklahoma's playing an entirely decent Texas But team. I don't want to waste too much of our time, but, Cade, would you agree that the following dream is not impossible? <laughs> Whose dream is it? Who's My dream. dream. <laughs> what is your okay. dream? All right. Do you agree? I'm going to put a probability on this, but maybe you got it wrong. Let's say there's an 80% chance Alabama beats Georgia. Slightly high, but okay. Okay. Let's say it's 40% chance that Texas beats Oklahoma. L- high. That's high. <laughs> well, they beat okay. them already. That's true, but still. Okay. A 5% chance... Northwestern beats Ohio State. Okay, let's go for that one. 
approximately correct. Okay. <laughs> so let's all right. So we multiply those three together and it's a one point six percent. Now what happens under that scenario? Well, there's only three teams left, four teams left, that have less than two losses. And one of them is UCF. Okay, here we go. So <laughs> do you agree with me that if Alabama beats Georgia, Texas beats Oklahoma? Ohio loses to Northwestern. Beats Ohio State. They sort of have to take UCF. Well, no, they don't have to take UCS, but there are people. They'd be all two-loss teams. They would have to take a two-loss team over an undefeated UCF. Do you agree under that scenario UCF could go? I'm not saying will. Could. Could. But, by the way, UCF also has to beat Memphis. Which is not going to be that trivial. Without their quarterback. I mean, they don't 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 have to take them. I mean, two-loss Michigan is sitting there. It's a very good team. For There's example. a bunch of two losses. No, no, no. There would be scenario. a number. Georgia's well, still there. Georgia though. would be a two-loss team. Ohio State would be a two-loss so team. There would be a lot of two-loss teams. I don't think the committee will make that decision. Maybe you agree that they sh- Maybe you think that they should make that decision, but they're not going to, which is I, a different question, right? I just think if you had all of these teams who kind of knew, in some sense, let's treat the playoffs as starting this week. All of those teams have an opportunity to make it. They lose this week. They should be out. Why not? That's just not the way it works. I mean, that, that that that's it's not set up to be a tournament in that way, and we've already got precedent for teams losing late in the season and still being included. Either way, I'm hoping for my one percent dream yeah. that those three teams lose, <laughs> and I don't think Alabama or Texas winning is that would be that shocking to me. I no, think Northwestern I mean, I mean, winning would be shocking. Look, the Alabama and Texas lines, Alabama and Oklahoma lines are around seven. The the Northwestern and Pittsburgh lines, the other two relevant Power Five conference championships, are around twenty. They're very different probabilities. But Alabama and Texas, are, those are real games. Those things could happen. The ch- as you said, the chance of all of them happening is unlikely. Well, that's you tw- said what caught my eye on sports. I still have the dream for okay. UCF. All right. <laughs> so tell me what you thought of the Michigan-Ohio game. Interestingly, I think this was like a reversion to prior in some, some sense. Those of you who are thinking about the all the way back line, the, all the way back to the – I mean, Ohio is supposed to be a talented team. Preseason. Ohio, they, Ohio State. Nev- Ohio State, and they never really played up to their potential, and all of a sudden they just let it out. That's right. I don't quite – I mean, it's really hard to understand because they looked so middling for not just a week or two, but for the entire middle stretch of the of the season. Not only right. did they get blown out by at Purdue, should have been mean, beaten by Maryland. Out. They they should have been well. They they could have been beaten by Maryland. It was an overtime, you know, two point conversion situation. They 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 were close in some other games as well that they shouldn't have been close in. So for them to be able to turn it on after I don't know six weeks of yeah. subpar play. So what do you what do you, what's your re- revision? Are you revising your estimate of Michigan or are you revising your estimate? Yeah, of Ohio? do you change much based on this game? I mean, obviously Ohio State went in and dominated Michigan, but would is that what do you do? Do you bring I don't, I don't, is that perspective? Iowa. We can like, look can at it. We can look at that? it in particular, but I, I think intuitively what you do is not move that much on Michigan. And good teams lose games all the time. But I think you might update some on Ohio State. For the, the ability to beat a very good Michigan team that handily says something about that team. And, it, and we kind of forgot it about Ohio State. And it's, it's apparently still there. So I, I mean, I can tell you how... Let me ask a question right now. Just two teams, one who's clearly in the, in the playoffs and one who's probably not going to get in or may not get in. If you had, How do you rank Ohio State versus Notre Dame right now? They both beat Michigan. Notre Dame barely beat Michigan, but they beat Michigan. It was the first game of the season. If Let's imagine the team was going to use Massey Peabody. Uh, the uh, college football playoff selection crew was going to use Massey Peabody to select who would be in. Now, there's who a dream would, wor- worthwhile. Okay, <laughs> well, uh, UCF then may get in. Who, who would you have higher? Who's higher right now, Notre Dame 
or Ohio State. Ohio State. And we've had them higher for a long time. Notre Dame is pretty distinctly unimpressive until the last two weeks. We had them down at, I don't know, 11, 12 in, in most of the middle of the season. They just weren't doing very much. The last two weeks they've looked – well, two weeks ago they looked very good. This week against SC, I don't know. That wasn't the most impressive win, but we still have them about eight or so. We somehow never lost faith in Ohio State. They never dropped out of our top six. Despite kind of muddling through that schedule, they never dropped out of the top six, and now they're number five. But you still have Michigan higher than we Ohio still have State. Michigan a little bit higher, yeah. And that's you know that's just the way models work. You don't they do. you don't overreact, especially mm-hmm. at this point in the season. You don't overreact to one game. You know it's a rivalry game. It was in Columbus. It was surveying. they got hit in the mouth hard early, and they're like, oh hold on, this may not be the Ohio State team we thought we were playing. You just don't overreact too much to a single game. But you agree at the moment right now, unless something as you said, it's a fluky win and Ohio State blows out. Uh, Northwestern, which may happen, Oklahoma's likely to go over Ohio State, at least as we stand right now. Yeah, I mean, they, the committee think, has them above them now, and they have a tougher game to win, sure. Yeah, and I mean, so, so but you you do envision a scenario where, depending on how those two games go, you could still take Ohio State over Oklahoma. Yeah, you, like. you could. It's, I mean, look, Even the, if they both win, but yeah, Oklahoma somehow looks unimpressive yeah, in the I mean, win. Look, here, we There's can, enough wiggle we room, can, you think, in this committee's yeah, mind for we that. Can, we can, I mean, they're above them. We don't yeah. know how much they're above them. They could right. be up by a hair. Yeah. hair. They've got to put somebody above. And then, look, we could be more precise about it. All we'd like the committee to do is norm the performance this Saturday for expectations. Right. That's all we really want. So, Oklahoma has a tougher game. They're supposed to win by seven, while Ohio State's supposed to win by, you know, 21 or something. Fine. So just norm that out. And if Ohio State goes out and wins by 42 and Oklahoma wins by three, you might reasonably mm-hmm. move more on Ohio State. Maybe you and could, that, by the way, that could absolutely happen. Maybe you yeah. could educate all of us here because maybe you have some idea about the inner workings of the committee in the following sense. Similar to Massey Peabody, where there's actually a score. Does You mentioned this. Does the committee actually have a score? You said we don't know how much they're ahead by. Do they actually have a continuous strength parameter score, however they're defining it, or do they have a rank order? Do we know anything about whether there's actually, like, what you do with Massey? I don't mean um, the mathematical model part. Yeah, do I they understand. actually have a score you know, that yeah. each team is do getting? Do you actually render the teams down to a single number? Yeah, so that's you what I'm, I mean, it's, it's interesting because what you're talking about is actually a standard mathematical problem. The ranking one is easier than the score, but you can always go for the harder problem than back out the rank. Right. And there's uh, more information. There's more inf- so I'm, I'm actually, I would guess they probably go for a ranking because if you had to make a decision, <laughs> you know, a lot easier to you make know a rank. They go for a ranking because the only way you can have a continuous yeah. score is to have a model, to have a model, a quantitative yeah. model that's going to integrate do everything. Well, let me ask right. you then a, a, maybe a, a different question. We vote in our departments all the time. We actually have a rank-ordered voting model in our department. Matter of fact, there was just an election that was in Maine that I think was determined by that. Could you believe the following happens? Let's say there's 10 person on the committee. Each committee member ranks the teams, let's say, from 1 to 10, whatever it is. And then there are voting rules that determine who goes. Is it possible that that is done at some level? Yeah, I think that's much better. I doubt they're being that sophisticated about it. I mean, you know, it takes a, no. a department that as sophisticated as quantitative marketing here at Wharton to do something like that. Even most academic departments aren't that sophisticated. Okay. And they know the rules. But you doubt even that's happening, that no, there's a rank-ordered voting process, which, by the way, there's, as you know, there's lots of theory, lots, lots of, of theory. principles that say how to design a system like yeah. that and how to combine 10 different people's ranks to come out with an yeah, order. and that would be a great compromise if for if we wanted to improve the committee's process, no, we don't know. Maybe maybe they are doing something like that. I kind of doubt it, but maybe they are. But that'd be a nice middle ground between 
what they're likely doing just you know because that's how groups decide these things versus a full quantitative model. But I can tell you, you know, for for forecasting what's going to happen down the road, which we've been doing from preseason, so we've always had to have a forecast of the committee model. For any given set of outcomes at the end of the season, we have to forecast what the committee is going to do, which means we have to have the mathematical model. So we do render down the committee's committee's judgment to a single number. So we can have, and, and we've gotten pretty good at this. For a number of the weeks, we've more or less nailed everything for a, a big stretch of the 2025 20, Just rankings. to be clear how it works, just for our listeners here, you have past data on committee decisions, and you have past Massey Peabody strength parameters. So what you can do then is you can tie your strength parameters to the likely decisions of the committee. Is that roughly how you guys do you it? You probably have to tie more than the strength yeah, parameters, Yeah, we use more right? than just Massey Peabody. In fact, we may or may not use Massey Peabody. We use everything that we think the committee might use. Okay. So we're just trying to replicate what they do. So they're going to use you know wins over tw- top 25 teams. They're going to use strength of record. They're going to use see. strength of schedule, those kinds of things. They might use Power 5 conference. They might use conference champion. So we consider all of these inputs, as you would if you were modeling something, to come up to replicate the orders that they're using. So you it's, actually do have insight into what they actually are using, right? We, because you know you, you all these things go into your model and you've presumably got weights on yeah, right. on those things trained from past data. That's exactly right. And and over time, we, we've gotten reasonably good at modeling. So for example, our forecast for what they're going to do this week is spot on, especially at the top. For what they did, but all of this is going towards your question about the, how close these things are. Remember, we're talking about Ohio State and Oklahoma being relatively close. They're they're ordered five and six, but that might just be a slight difference. So, what one of the things we do as we go through the season is we build a, a pecking order. So it's all the possible teams that might exist at the end of the season. So you have an undefeated Alabama, but then you have a one loss Alabama who drops a game to Georgia in the SEC title. Then you have a one loss. Alabama, who loses to Auburn, but then beats Georgia. So you've got all these possible variations on teams, and you could ask, how would the committee rank them? And it gives us a sense of how these things are going to play out. So just to give you a sense of your question, when we consider, now we're down to just one week, so there aren't so many interesting permutations, but there still are permutations. We have a one-loss Big Ten champion, Ohio State, and a one-loss Big 12 champion, Oklahoma, one-tenth of a point separate from each other. And that's and how big is that? Well, they're eight points below an undefeated an undefeated Alabama, so it really is just a hair's breadth between those two teams. And in in our prediction, can we play out one other does. scenario, which I'd love to get your opinion and thought on? Let's suppose the opposite happens. If you want all hell to break loose, let's have Georgia beat Alabama. Yeah. Okay. Now we have a one loss Georgia, a one loss Alabama. Let's say an undefeated Clemson yeah. and an undefeated Notre Dame. That's Are true. Ohio State and Oklahoma? Both out I under those so, yeah. scenarios. I, I think so, and our model would agree. We're quite- despite. Let's imagine Oklahoma blows out Texas. Ohio State looks just as impressive. So let's even imagine Massey Pigbetty would upgrade their strength parameters. Matter of fact, they exceed any reasonable model's expectation of performance. Georgia beats Alabama. Let's say whatever soundly means seven points, ten points, whatever the number is. You still think the Big Ten champion and the Big Twelve champion are both out? Yeah, I, I love what you've done. That you've added some nice nuance that makes well, it a more interesting question. And doing my best here. <laughs> yeah, I mean, yeah, I think you can drop a scenario where it's an actual conversation. Um, Alabama has to get beat pretty soundly, and the, and one of those other two teams needs to look really good. Uh, and then you have a conversation. It, those things are unlikely because Alabama, if they lose, is probably not going to lose by much. And if that's the case, I think most people are going to say that team, who most people believe is one of the best teams we've seen in college football in a long time, is going to be included. 
And, and so those poor other teams just out of luck. I just would love it if Alabama – I mean, I'm fine with it. If Alabama goes, which obviously they deserve to go, but if they go for the second consecutive year, I predict they will win the national championship, where they weren't even their conference champion. Last year they didn't even play in the conference uh, championship that's game. Right. That's right. That's, you know – well, that's also a case for including them. If you if you want to have the I best agree. team in here, and they they seem to be emphasizing best more than we might have expected a few years ago, as opposed to what you mentioned earlier is like okay, you can't lose and still get in the playoff. There is a sense of that's the way it should be structured. I mean, is the, we're used to tournaments, yeah. you know, you, mm-hmm. you you have to play your way into these things. Is and, that the is that the mandate that they're supposed to try to find the best team as opposed to the one that most deserve? Yeah, because the, I would treat it as a tournament, which is why you get US UCS UCF in your in your models all the time, Eric. Yeah, you have a different way of evaluating. No, because the way I would treat it. No, well, the way I would treat it this year would be the following. I understand there's four teams in the playoff. I treat it like this week in my mind. Just so what the committee's doing. I didn't say what their mandate is. The playoffs start this week. Alabama yeah. loses. They're they, out. They're out. Yeah. <laughs> you know, and you know, Clemson loses this week. They're out. And you know, I, I just think that's the way it should be. They know they have to win. <clears throat> so, what, what would you do with Notre Dame in that situation, considering they don't even play this week? Well, Notre Dame earned a buy. They earned a buy. They're under. They're, well, <laughs> they they're undefeated. How did they earn a buy? Exactly. This wasn't a tournament. They're, under, they're undefeated. No. They're, no, they're undefeated. I mean, they they won every game they, they had to win. One less game, and it would have been one of the toughest games of the year. So, I, I but I hear you. I do hear you. And people, when they talk about possibly going to an eight-team playoff, uh, many people. The, for many people, the model would be the conference champion from each of the Power Five conferences. So you've got five teams that have to win their conference championship, and it's much more play-in. You know, the tournament begins now, kind of thing. And I think for many people, it'd be more satisfying. But you, you would say the most likely—I don't call them doomsday—but you know, hell breaks loose scenario is Georgia beats Alabama. I, in some ways, it's not hell breaks loose because it's then it's just Alabama versus Ohio one, State one or, or, one or Oklahoma. Two of those other if, teams. It's not if, that big. A deal. If if they another part of uh, another kind of direction of Eric's dream, if they change it to an eight team playoff this yeah. year. They just announced that. Would UCF <laughs> get in? They would, yes. yes, they would yes. get you in. You think so? Yes. Politically, even, even, yeah, with eight yeah. teams, they would say, we got to take a group of five teams. Yeah. Look, the good news is for UCF's point of view is, look, I, obviously they're not going to be in the playoffs, but I'll tell you what, given where they're ranked right now, if they win their final game, which as Kate points out, is not obvious without mm-hmm. Milt, Mackenzie Milton against uh, Memphis, they will get to play one of these other teams that other people think should yeah. be in the playoffs. They're going to play in Ohio State or in Oklahoma or No, but it's but without their quarterback and he's and he's a he's, he's I know. A, the most Run, important player I understand on the team. that. But they will get to play somebody anyway. It's just kind of a shame because we don't get to see what people wanted to see, which is that game you're talking about, but they don't have their key player. Well we got to see it last year when they beat the only team that beat Alabama. <laughs> they beat Auburn. All right. Wharton Moneyball, you guys give us a ring. One eight four four Wharton. Whole crew is in here this morning, Eric Audie Shane and Kate. What else, fellas? I, mean, I can keep going well, on college football. Well, no, I want to chess. Else? I mean, come on. Anybody? <laughs> where, <laughs> are, where are we? On, where, yeah, yeah. Let's a, talk a little bit about it's this. It's actually interesting. I mean, one Still of the things draws, that everybody's draws, draws all no. around. Uh, uh, but you're going to Carlson basically soon, right? blew it, allegedly blew it. Yeah. The, um, although it's interesting because the models that they have that track win probabilities, and it's great, there's win probability models for chess. Um, doesn't doesn't indicate he had that much of an advantage. Apparently there was a time pressure that Caruana was facing and that he should have just plugged him out, and that in fact uh, Kasparov essentially said that indicates weakness on Carlson's part. I read, he, he I read an article. Close. I read an article that Kasparov wrote about it, and he was incredulous 
that Carlson offered a draw yeah, right. in that match. He said he could not understand. He clearly had in his mind I mean, an advantage. I, 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 Carlson had advantages both in time yeah. and in position, yeah. basically. Two pawns. But added. can we talk about? So, Kate, I don't know so, if our yeah, listeners here. I just want to say one thing. I don't know if our listeners know this. The format now changes. Yep. Yeah. Well, hold on. What, where, where are we in this? Thing? We, we six to six. So it's six. It's it's six six. It's, it's all draws. Six six. Twelve out draws. Of how many? Twelve draws. And so now they're moving There's to been a fast straight draws. That's it. They're That's done. It. Oh, that was it. Oh, all, no, no. Wow. Listen to so what happened. It was supposed to be 12 minutes. Okay, so now they're going to a fast pace, right, which is much different. And they have <clears throat> much more limited time. It's like overtime, I it's guess. Kind of, and, and so they play a, a very quick set of games, and, and, and uh, the best, the, the, to anyone who wins they will mostly win. They mostly move to speed chess. Specifically yeah. speed chess. Stunning. And they expect a winner out of, the, out of the speed chess. But if they do have draws out of speed chess, which is not then it goes zero, to a, probably, it goes to something called Armageddon. No, this is exciting. <laughs> which is super speed chess. It's basically, uh, w- white gets four minutes, They switch to chess boxing. <laughs> <laughs> and it just, it ends. So hold on, hold on. Give us a sense of what happens in this round of overtime. Like, what how fast are the games? And then I, what happens in the Armageddon? I think these how games are 20 are minutes. Is that how much Yeah, time but you get? get a little extra time for right. certain things. For Let's certain assume moves. they're going to be 30-minute games roughly for all of the moves. And there'll be four of these things. These Correct. are rapid games. Four rapid, rapid games. But let me say one thing that's interesting. So let me give you an argument that I saw for why... No, Carlson should not have accept, offered a draw. But let's imagine... Which, which match was it that you guys were talking about? Game 12. The last game. The, game. Game. Right there. the tournament's so why, over. Why, it's over. If... if why would you offer the draw? Why not play it out a little bit longer? I can't understand. No. How, 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 many, how many moves had they played at that point? Very small number. Something like I think it was something like 12 or 15 yeah, 12 or 18. Yeah, 12 to 15. No, no, interesting. No. interesting. No. I read this on 538. I won't take credit. He had his dinner date. They, uh, was, yeah. after the 12, <laughs> he had other places to be. <laughs> after the first 12 moves, they had put themselves in territory which uh, no human beings had ever been before. <laughs> Which is no. not, which is not well, a joke. Well, well, well. No human beings at this level had ever been. Uh, that's true. Yeah, it's not like they were. We, there, yeah. There's probably there's a chess game and Eric played, and that's what they abandoned themselves in. Yeah. But which is interesting because most people don't understand that chess is actually a game of, of patterns, um, not so much of individuality until you get deep into the game. And that the, the masters and grandmasters, they memorize or learn all oh, yeah. the different openings and all the different um, kind of configurations. Mm-hmm. And this is why someone can actually take some, some say, take a line of chess and really work it and potentially have a, a decent shot to beat a, a much better player if they've really, really studied one particular um, line of play and, and it actually walks into that one. So I can only come up with one argument that I read about why Carlson offered a draw, and here's what it is. Let's imagine that the, the final ending position was more open and uncertain than normal, okay? And I think everyone agrees to that. His speed chess rating is 2950. The other guy, how do you pronounce his last name? Corano, I think it Corano, is. Corano, something yeah. like that, is a 2730. Now, for those of you that don't know, 200 points in chess is a huge difference. So the argument that was given, that one of the people that want to support Carlson was saying, he's got a massive advantage in the speed chess round if this position, even though maybe he did have an advantage, but it was a wide open, unchartered <clears throat> territory. Play it safe. Go to the speed chess round. You know you're the better speed chess player. It's about two to one, I think, probability. Yeah, but I'm saying 200. But that's huge. That's a huge advantage. So, so Kate, you asked for a reason. That's why. That's a phenomenal reason. How can you even argue with that? That's, like, utterly reasonable. Well, that's the reason given. That's what I read. So where was Kasparov on this? He just didn't like the principle of it. He didn't like the principle of it, and he didn't understand why he at least didn't play it out farther. Because in Kasparov's, the worst Carlson could do in that game was a draw. The right. worst he could do was a draw because he had a I significant guess, yeah. advantage. Carlson probably didn't agree. Well, he he, they're allowed to things, disagree. They're allowed to disagree. Have, uh, also, Carlson he knew how he felt. 
And considering how much mental energy this takes day in and day out, he might well, just well, that's Kasparov's ca- kind yeah. of argument. He's kind of it's not a very analytical one; it's more of a passionate yeah. one. That like Carlson somehow showed, like you know, uh, uh, you know, by by offering this draw, showed that he you know maybe way, has a weakness about mm-hmm. closing out. It these also games. talks to uh, Kate, uh, Adi. Just one other quick thing about age curves in chess because it does make me wonder again. Like, why can't Kasparov, who many consider the greatest who ever played? Why can't he still be out there playing? And here's the reason. He, uh, you, he could play one game against Carlson, and he may well win that game. I don't think there's any doubt he could win that game. But for him to do it over a two-week period, at the end of the day, there is an age curve in chess. And the mental fatigue of playing 12 games in some short amount of time, I don't know how old Garry Kasparov is. I'm going to guess 60. He's got to be somewhere in that neighborhood. It probably is fatiguing and there I'm sure there is an age curve in chess. I also think that there's a it, it's uh the game moves on. Like it like most things I mean, do. Stylistically. stylistically they assemble new knowledge and I don't think he, unless he's been keeping up. Isn't that remarkable a, that a game that has been played for as long as chess yeah. has been played could still be evolving tactically? Mm-hmm. You could mm-hmm. you could you could fall behind the times. I mean, it's not football where you have air raid teams now. This is something that was supposed to be kind of fixed. So you're saying it's less fixed than people might yeah. think. That's really New knowledge is getting, I think the, the the computers have opened up new lines of attack right. that have really that changed the way it. they came. And yeah. what you mean by that is you watch them play and you learn something. They're mm-hmm. discovering things that people hadn't discovered without them. Yeah. That's really interesting. So the, the speed chess bit is an f- interesting feature here because, you know, Eric used to work in standardized test. It's how quickly you can get to the right answer is a mark of expertise or intelligence. It's not just getting the right answer. It's how quickly you get there, right? So this, in some ways, I mean, look, I understand it doesn't capture everything, but it is a, it capture, if, 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 if Carson is that much better than Caruana, then in, at speed chess, that reveals something about his uh, additional expertise, right? Absolutely. As a matter of fact, the three, th- so I'll just say one quick thing for my ETS days. Um, we built lots of predictive models, not only of how well you're going to do on tests, but how well it predicts downstream things, like how well you're going to do in college and other things like that. The three things, the three data points that were very interesting from a test were, number one, of course, how you performed. Number two, how quickly you answered items, which Kay just said. And number three, for test parts that had, like, pick three out of six, which ones did you pick? It turns out, of those three data sources, the most predictive of downstream performance was which items did you pick, given a selection of items. Smarter people pick easier items. Smarter people can look at a problem quickly, assess which problems they can solve and do. People that are less able pick problems they they can't discern which are the problems so we actually built mathematical models where we said let's throw out their score let's throw out the time let's only use the information on which items did you pick and that's more predictive of performance in college than the actual score you got on it's the test phenomenal wow. but you you know you don't you didn't actually report that out the no, testing agencies no, didn't no. but but we'd like to have that information yeah. why not drop it into the GRE or GMAT and then you we, could do that well i mean we wrote a paper that's what we wrote a paper on it we did write a paper on it that says that there's information in the items that you select and the selection yeah, process is informative about your okay. ability as well as time i've written well, other papers on speededness and how you build a model that says sure. correct answer and speed but that's because there's a lot of junk in in the in the in the full test that you don't need one of the things that i've did i've done with my multiple uh, choice uh tests is i've done an, an item analysis and typically you can you can guess someone's score 
to within a point or two with four or five questions out mm. of a 40 or 50. It's just a few that, that carry all the load. So you're obviously a obviously a believer in what yeah. we've all worked on for years at ETS, which is adaptive testing, which is yeah. what you do is you, you kind of hone in very quickly on someone's ability. If they get it, simple answers, someone gets a question right, you give them a harder item. They get it wrong, you give them an easier item. You can shorten tests by about 40% using that process. Yeah. And that's, by the way, just for those people that love testing, the most expensive thing when delivering a test is writing test items. So adaptive testing, forget just that the people sit there for a shorter amount of time. You actually have to produce less of what's called an item bank, and it saves a ton of money. But look, this isn't just about standardized tests for admissions to college. Right. It's also about where people are doing assessment all the time all the these time. days, yeah. or hiring, or any number of things. And so this would be a way to improve improve that. Two two things I want to jump on real quickly. One, I also understand that I think I understand. I think I remember this that that debate teams, like high school debate teams or college debate teams, the structure of those tournaments, they pair a bunch of the teams up. The, the winners then advance, and you just keep on winning. You play, you keep playing, like the losers go and play losers, and then yeah. someone wins, they advance. And so it's it's a version of this in a way. It's like if you if you win, you get a harder test by pay, playing another team that won. If you lose, you get an easier win by playing another team that loses. And that's some super, I mean, you got, you've got, got a limited amount of time to sort through a bunch of debate teams. This that's is right. an efficient way to do it. Yeah, and I mean, why wouldn't we do this with college football? This is where I'm going. I yeah, mean, other places we could borrow <laughs> adaptive for this schedule, structure, adaptive schedules. So one one other thing I want to jump on here is this idea of selection being important. I was going to ask you about this feature of chess that's interesting. The time isn't you have two minutes to make a move; it's that you have you know 25 minutes across the entire game to make moves. And so, an important part of this for these guys is to assess in this situation: is it one where I need to spend a lot of time? Or do I save time because I, I, I will need it down the road? You, you, they're, they're essentially, how hard do I work on this problem? It's exactly this assessment question that you were asking. Yeah, I would agree with that. And I would guess where Adi was talking about earlier, which is that they study all of these openings. Yeah. What you're going to happen in speech as I play... It goes know, very fast I'm an in the beginning. No. They're like 2,800. Take 1,000 off, and that's where I was when I was playing chess. But I played a friend of ours, Mark Glickman, a lot in chess, and we played used to play speed chess quite a bit. The first fifth, 10 or 15 moves go really quickly in speed chess because you then have to limit yourself, at least at our level, to a very conventional style of opening. And then once you deviate, that's when the time starts. But the first 10 or 15 moves may be done in 30 seconds total, mm-hmm. may mm-hmm. literally be done in 30 seconds total. All right, we're going to play, I'm going to play this variation, you're going to play that variation. We both have kind of agreed to not waste time on this. Let's get to it. All right. Well, that's been the first quarter of Wharton Moneyball. We still have three quarters around here. Come back and join us after the break. Welcome back to Wharton Moneyball. Two hours of sports analytics live every Wednesday morning. You can join the conversation, 1-844-WHARTON. That's 1-844-942-7866. Or email us, businessradio at SiriusXM.com, businessradio at SiriusXM.com. We take your emails during the show or during the week. You can also hit us up on Twitter. Handle up there is at WMoneyBall, at WMoneyBall. We follow all of our guests. We occasionally post on the world of sports analytics. Not a bad way to stay in touch with that world. Rolling into, this is Cade Massey, by the way hosting this morning with the whole crew, though we just lost Audie Weiner to the classroom, as we do during the fall on Wednesdays. But Shane is still here. Eric is still here. We're going to be here for the next hour and a half. We have guests in the next two half-hour segments coming up in this half hour. Starting right now, we are welcome. We are, we're welcoming and delighted to welcome Seth Walder from ESPN. Seth 
is a sports analytics writer. He's been there since 2017. He's a great follow on Twitter, by the way. It's at Seth Walder. And as far as I know, this is Seth's first time on the show. Welcome to the show, Seth. Thanks, Kate. It is my first time. How are you guys doing? Uh, well, I can't believe we haven't had you here. You're 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 someone we pay a lot of attention to, and you're always interesting, writing interesting things. Where are you calling in from this morning? I'm calling in from Bristol, Connecticut, the office. Oh wow! So you're you're one of these ESPNers who's actually at the ESPN headquarters. I'm I'm there half the time. I split my time between New York and uh, and Bristol, so I am here. Uh, Monday to Wednesday, I'm in I'm in Bristol usually. So why 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 is it that you have to split your time? It, <laughs> some some folks get to just you know write from I don't know Northern Virginia or something to speak right. of hypothetical analytics people. Well, my job it is important that I'm here part of the time because I sort of have like a two pronged role. Like what you guys see is me you know using our analytics to tell sports stories publicly, but. I also have a sort of internal role, which is to try and uh, encourage the usage of those analytics in everyone else's stories and make sure that people are aware of the, you know, the tools that we can offer that can help uh, assist in trying to figure out you know, what's going on in all these sports. So it is, it is very helpful for me to be here, plus the whole uh, or most of the analytics team is, uh, is here, and so I work really closely with all the rest of them. So the, how big is the team up there these days? How many folks do you have on analytics? Uh, we have, I think, gosh, I should know the number. I think eight um, people on the team, and uh, it's mostly statisticians and developers and then uh, me, basically. That's, okay. that's sort of how it goes. So, so Seth, you, this, you're making quite the contribution to the world of sports in this role, this this role, not not necessarily as a writer, but this role of um, evangelist, if you will, trying to get other people to use it. And it seems to me, and, and I didn't know you had that role, which is fantastic. I've been saying throughout the college football season in particular that ESPN's getting pretty dang good at getting FBI, which is great college football analytics, out in the conversation and using it in more places. And it's making people smarter. So what role have you had in that? Yeah, I appreciate it because that's been a big focus for us. I think, you know, part of it has been an effort, but part of it's just naturally. I think over time, because that's a metric that we've had for years, people have, you know, noticed its effectiveness and they get more used to it and they realize that it's actually a really great way for us to try and tell stories because one thing that happens in college football all the time is people talk about like what's happened so far but everyone knows well you know you may be 5 and 0 oh, but if if you have a bunch of tough teams coming down the line that's you know, that doesn't really tell you all that much so FPI along with playoff predictor which is our our new just this year for the first time you know predicting what the committee will do uh, we've gotten a ton of usage around that, and we've been really happy with the acceptance. The, the company's been just great at using Playoff Predictor, even in its first year, to talk about college football. So, which is which is pretty amazing. Um, and I, I have to tell you that I have kind of mixed reactions when I see your stuff around the playoff, because heretofore, I felt like we had, Massey Peabody had the best stuff out there on, on frankly, power ratings and 
college football playoff predictors. And then I see your stuff. You're like, well, dang, you're right on top of us, man. You look so similar. But that, that's been our reaction to FBI for years. When you, when you guys first came out with FBI, we're like, oh, oh, this is something different than anybody else has had. And this looks a lot like our stuff. It acts a lot like our stuff. And then I go and talk to people like Dean Oliver who helped create the thing. And I found out, yeah, no wonder, because you guys are thinking about it in the same way. So it's not surprising to me that your playoff predictor is doing as well as it is. But can you tell us about the construction of that thing? Because it's, it's not a trivial thing to put together. Yeah, sure, and 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 you know, I see the exact, I have the exact same reaction to you guys. You know, I, I pay attention to, you know, the Massey Peabody numbers, and I can see that we're attacking it in the same in the mm-hmm. same kind of way because we end up with pretty similar results. We take our FPI projections, right? So that's basically where we um, we have a, a, a strength rating for every team, and then we use that to along with information like team site and rest differential to project out the season. That part's easy. That part we've already had. Right. The difficult part is that, and the reason we haven't had something previously, is that here we're trying to model like what a group of humans are going to do right. in this room. And you know that that's trickier, of course. It's not, it's not like the NFL or something where we know who's going to get in the playoff. The, the thing that we did was, and this was really my colleagues, Paul Sabin and Matt Morris, when, you know, looking at, they looked at the committee's rankings, not just on selection day, but all those midweek rankings that they've yep. done yep. over the last four years, and try and, try and sort of distill what are, the, what are the factors that the committee is considering. They always say it's the four best teams, but it's not the four best teams. Right. If it's, the, if it's really the four best teams, then Alabama ought to just rest all its starters on Saturday because then they would be in no matter what. The, what we came up with is that so we used our metrics as a proxy. Obviously, the committee's not literally using FPI and strength of record, but those are sort of the things. It's some combination of best and most deserving. Mm-hmm. The most important mm-hmm. thing is strength of record. 15 of the 16 teams that have gotten into the college football playoff uh, in, the, in the past four years were top four in strength of record. So, and Seth, remind, remind us all about strength of record, because for years sure. we were accustomed to this other phrase. We were accustomed to strength of schedule. And yeah. then just since the, really just in the playoff era, people have been talking about strength of record. No, you're right. It's, a, it's, it's such a great concept. And I remember when I first heard it, and I was like, wow, that really, that really helps put it together. Basically, what we're doing is strength of schedule is great, right? We're, we're ranking how difficult your, your opponents were, but, um, but sometimes you have to compare teams with different records, and how do you sort of combine those two factors? How do you compare a 10-2 and two team to an 11-1 and one team uh, with a different strength of schedule? And so what we do is we say from an, well, from an average top 25 team's perspective, what is the chance that that team, something like the 12th best team in, in the country, what is the chance that that team could achieve the record you achieved given the schedule you faced? Um, and so what that helps us do is it helps us say that a team like UCF, who is undefeated, how do you compare that to like LSU, who has two losses? It turns out that for a good college football team, a going 11 and 0 with UCF schedule would be like uh, a little bit easier than going 9 and 3. Sorry, I forgot LSU lost their game. 9 and 3 with LSU schedule. It's actually right. easier to do that. So that's really important information for the playoffs. Right. There's a wrinkle in there that you that you mentioned but didn't focus on and that is this isn't the average division 1 teams 
ability to accomplish what this team did. It's the top 25's likelihood. <clears throat> so what's the significance of choosing using a, 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 the top 25 as opposed to you know an average team? Correct. Yeah, no, this, and this is a huge thing for us this week because it matters a lot. Strength of schedule for you know it requires a perspective. So um, the example that I gave uh, when we were talking about it internally this week is, um, let's say you had two schedules. Uh, one team was going to play um, Rutgers and Alabama, and one team was going to play Kansas and Ohio State. So Kansas is better than Rutgers. Um, and so if you are an average team, let's say you're Minnesota, it doesn't really matter if you're going to play Alabama or Ohio State. You're like an extreme underdog to either one of those teams. Right. But it matters quite a bit if you're playing Kansas or Rutgers. Mm-hmm. But if we're talking about if you're Clemson, then it doesn't really matter if you, if you play Kansas or Rutgers. You're going to be a heavy favorite against them. And it matters quite a bit to you if you're going to play Alabama or Ohio State. Right. Much, you'd much rather play Ohio State. And so who has the tougher schedule? It depends on the perspective you're looking at it from. And so that's why, for strength of record, we use this, what we call our top team strength of schedule, which is not the normal number that we publish, but is, uh, but is uh, I think, the correct approach here. I'll tell you that it's, it's an interesting time right this second today because – at the moment, though they have the same record, in our average team strength of schedule, uh, Oklahoma has a higher average team strength of schedule, but Ohio State has, an, has a higher top team strength of schedule. So that is a little bit confusing for folks why we have Ohio State as having a better strength of record. But you can imagine that this sounds a little esoteric, but then it translates reasonably well in the way the committee talks about these things. And they talk about it in these kind of heuristic ways, a number of top 25 wins, that, that kind of thing. And you're capturing some of that by using a more nuanced version of strength of schedule or strength of record. Yeah. <clears throat> or, or, agree. Sorry, go, go ahead. Just to go dig dig a little deeper. So you, basically perspective, the perspective from which you kind of view these teams' schedules is kind of a two, one of the tuning parameters of your model, right? And is, that pers- and is that perspective something that you actually do kind of train on? Do you have enough data from past committee results oh, to actually kind of, you know, find the best perspective with which to essentially emulate past committee decisions? No, it's a good question. No, no is the answer. We haven't, we, we don't, uh, we haven't trained the model to like as in tested it off of average top twenty five team or average top four team or something yep, like yep, that. We yep. just use our our standard strength of record. But I do think that yeah, if you were honing in on what the committee was doing to like a extremely detailed level, that would pro- that would make sense and, as something to look and, at. And you could do it. it. It sounds probably harder than it actually is because you could, for example, just create a few of those different versions: a, a top ten, a top five, a top twenty five, and then try each of them in the model. So it's and a, assume it's a, that the committee's sort of decision making was stationary over time well, or something like that, which is probably a big assumption that's inherent to the entire yeah. enterprise and, yeah. and we know that it's not but it's kind of the best we can do though you could throw a decay function on there if you wanted to yeah, yeah seth this is eric brother i want to ask you a question um sure. let me i just want to make sure i'm following let's imagine whether it's fpi mass ep buddy etc doesn't matter for the moment let's imagine team a is better than team b mm-hmm. okay according to some metric then how is it true that under strength of record Team A would have a higher strength of record than Team B, according to this calculation. Or is there something I'm missing? Is there some interaction or some other moderators you're putting in there? I'll say it again. A is better than B, according to FPI or Massey P, buddy. 
Mm-hmm. Now I'm looking at the hypothetical. If A had played B's schedule, well, if A is better than B, is there any reason why the strength of record for A wouldn't be better than the strength of record for B, given A is better than B? This well, is what I'm trying to understand. Why can't we just use FPI or Massey Peabody? Why, what does strength of record add if I already know A is better than B? And I ask the hypothetical, what if A had played B's schedule or a, even anybody else's schedule? A is better than B. Well, we know that A is better than B, but what they do on the field still matters to the committee. So we would say we would still say to you that Michigan is, we think, slightly better than Ohio State. But Michigan lost to Ohio State, and they have two losses. So Ohio State's strength of record is superior to Michigan. Does that make sense? Yeah, absolutely. So it's not it, – Eric is quickly going to, like, what's true here. And right. we're not really trying to get to what's true. We're trying to get to what the committee's going to do. And exactly. That's why SOR, strength of record, it can, it's a nice compromise in a way because it's better than strength of schedule, but and but it's still palatable to the committee. Yeah, and I mean these all come down to sort of this balance of best versus deserve it, right? right? And you guys, I, I basically you guys are trying to emulate what the com- how the committee is going to balance those two mm-hmm. kind of concepts. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. We're talking Absolutely, to Seth Walker. That's why. Sorry, I just want to say, throw in too that it's you know I talked about strength of record and FPI. Those are two factors in our playoff model but it's there's you know we also consider the committee actually punishes you for losses more than even strength of record would so like the the literal number of losses that you have we found is also an indicator in uh, whether you're going to make the playoff along with whether you win your conference championship so we're talking to Seth Walter Seth is a sports analytics writer at ESPN he's a proselytizer of advanced analytics he's one of the reasons that ESPN is doing as much with advanced analytics in as public a way as it is, as they are. Seth, before we leave college football, what do you think is kind of the most interesting thing that could happen? What do you expect to happen? I see that you've written a piece that says, look, both Alabama, I mean, both Oklahoma and Ohio State win. You think that Ohio State slightly nudges Oklahoma, despite the fact that current poll, the current ranking, has Oklahoma a little bit ahead? Yeah, it's interesting. I wrote that up before, the, uh, before last night's rankings come out, came out. And our, that is what our model sees, but really what the model sees, I guess I should say, the better way to describe it is that this Ohio State versus Oklahoma scenario, if it comes down to those two teams, is really too close to call. Right. They're so razor thin. The margin is so razor thin between them and all the metrics yep. that it's going to come down to not just if they win on Saturday, but how they win. Mm-hmm. I think that's literally going to make the difference between those two teams if it comes down to those two mm-hmm. teams. Mm-hmm. Agreed. Ag- agreed entirely. So, Seth, you cover also professional football, and there are a few games going on these days. Can you tell us something that you've been working on or thinking about lately on the NFL side of things? Yeah, our best – the thing that we've done this year that I'm just most thrilled about is we, we have you know we have access to the NFL's player tracking data, and this year we've been able to create our own metrics off of that data. So – Brian Burke, uh, who's on our team and is uh, basically a wizard as far as I'm concerned. I know you guys have had him on uh, the show before. He created something, uh, some pass blocking and pass rushing metrics um, that we've used. They're based, on, uh, they're based on the player tracking. So essentially the chips and the shoulder pads are tracking these players. Um, I think as a lot of folks who listen to this show probably know. And it identifies who's blocking whom and can the offensive lineman sustain his block for more than two and a half seconds uh, or, or any amount of time, but we usually use that as, as a baseline for roughly league average time to throw. 
or does the defender get past his get past his uh, his man? And so this has really, for me, opened uh, my eyes a lot because we're finally having some really good data on offensive linemen and uh, and defensive linemen beyond just sacks. And so it's been really interesting to kind of dive into this line play. I've learned a ton over the last few months about that. So this is exciting because it's the it's the beginning of a translation of a like raw data into useful statistics. So and this is we've seen motion tracking enter all the sports at this point but but less so in in terms of the actual decision making and conversation because it's hard to translate all that raw data and it's unbelievably you know multi-dimensional into something useful so you're saying brian as a member of your team has come up with espn zone which is nice because there are vendors there's organizations out there whose business models are providing these kinds of things and here's mm-hmm. brian kind of building one on his own over there which is fabulous so that's neat in abstract terms but then you're saying he happened to choose something that is going to give us insight into player positions that we usually don't have player-level detail on. Most of us don't know how to judge an offensive guard or a nose tackle. At least we're not, you know, we're not sophisticated enough. To, we're not paying enough attention anyway. So what have you learned about either the, you know, that, that kind of position or about individual players? What has surprised you now that you're able to look at it at that level of granularity? Well, what I've seen is a few, a few times where, We've looked at the data and we've kind of identified teams or players that are playing particularly well or poorly, and I'm seeing those things before it's really become a like national talking point. Mm. We did a thing a few weeks ago on the Colts' offensive line and how they had you know they had some injury issues early in the year and they shuffled guys around, but once they sort of stabilized that group, that they were actually protecting Luck quite well. And it turns out that that's been uh, that's been part of their success over the last few weeks, where they're on a hot streak. Um, in a similar vein, I did a thing the, right when we launched this metric. I, I wrote a story about the Seahawks' offensive line. Obviously, the Seahawks are you know for years that's a much maligned group of offensive linemen. And what we were seeing was that that actually the Seahawks weren't that bad at protecting Russell Wilson. But the reason why it appeared so was that Wilson was holding the ball for so long that he was always under pressure. But it wasn't because the offensive line were doing a poor job, just because after a certain amount of time, a quarterback's always going to be under pressure eventually. It's not really a bad thing for Wilson, because he's got this kind of magic quality where he can elude pressure, get out of the pocket, and improvise. But actually, the Seahawks had a pretty good offensive line when we we use that sort of time stamp of uh, you know, two and a half seconds or three seconds or whatever you have. And that's really critical, I think, to understanding uh, how good these guys are. They, they, this is a group that people thought were really poor. And I think they pe- still thought that when we wrote that, but a few weeks, you know, over the, the following few weeks, I think a lot of people have really caught on to the fact that the Seahawks offensive line is just fine. Wow, that's not something that people usually figure out or change opinions on over the course of the season. Really interesting. It also emphasizes the interaction between different position groups in football. It's so hard to isolate the performance of any one position group because it depends on the performance of the adjacent position group. And quarterbacks and offensive line, my gosh, everyone knows that they're connected, but they that still doesn't allow them. Knowing it alone is not enough to separate the two. You need something like this. You said this thing, Seth, about that I think is just so true of advanced analytics and really good analytics is that you see things sooner 
essentially. I think this is what FPI provides. It, it's what at, at its best, it's what Massey Peabody provides. You see a team that people aren't talking about that's actually going to be talked about in a few weeks because eventually people are going to catch up to it. But you, but you see it earlier. It gives you, you literally see what's going on in in the sport more clearly and from a distance better. It's, it's, it's really, I think, exactly right. And it helps you gain a perspective on watching the game. I've found when doing this, um, you know, just to bring it back, still talking about the O-line, D-line stuff, I found when I'm literally watching football, because of all the work we've done on the, you know, around the line of scrimmage, that I'm literally watching the game in a different way, and it helps you understand the, the, the entire sport in a different way. And for something that's so complicated, I think it really helps our understanding of it when you can kind of see things from these different angles. Absolutely. The, uh, we're going to have to wind up here, but I want to ask one more version of this offensive lineman thing. Sure. That is a unit that has to perform well together, and you're evaluating the unit, but it's, isn't it the case that like if you know they're only as strong as their weakest link, right? One guy makes a mistake, then everything falls apart, right? It only takes one defensive yeah. lineman to come through. And so are you, this is, again, a form of interaction between the players. Are you guys able to say, you know, are you able to model that part of it? Are you able to model what determines the effectiveness of the unit as a function of these five individual components? I am so glad you brought this up. We haven't done a, a formal study, but there's, it's something that um, we're looking at and something that uh, has really piqued my interest over the last couple of weeks. I'll give you two examples, I think. that quick, Quickly, Seth. Really quick. Okay, the Patriots do not have any star offensive linemen. No one on that team is exceptional at pass blocking. However... As a team, they have the second best uh, overall pass block win rate because they're all around average. That sort of lends credence to the theory. It's better to have five average guys right. than a couple of stars. And on the flip side, the Dolphins have a couple of excellent offensive linemen, Laramie Tunsil, Jawan James, their tackles. Those guys are really great, but the interior of that line is weak, and they have the second worst wow, amazing. overall pass amazing. block win rate. Amazing. That's amazing. That's yeah. Seth, all right, listen, we got to let you go. Really appreciate your taking the time to be with us. Love the work. Wish you the best with it going forward. Thanks, guys. Appreciate it. Absolutely. That was Seth Walder. Seth is working with ESPN on Sports Analytics. You can follow him on Twitter. He's a great follow, at Seth Walder. Um, the first time on the show, I'm sure we're going to have him back. He's a great person to pay attention to. That is the first half of Wharton Moneyball. We still have half to go. Come back and join us after the break. Welcome back to Wharton Moneyball. Two hours of sports analytics live every Wednesday morning, 8 to 10 a.m. Eastern. Kate Massey hosting this morning with my buddies Eric Bradlow and Shane Jensen. Some combination of us are here every Wednesday morning talking sports analytics. You can join the conversation, one eight four four wharton Give us a shout, one 942 7866 or give us an email businessradio at sirusxm.com businessradio at sirusxm.com or give us a shout on twitter the handle up there is at wmoneyball at wmoneyball to reach out or to follow us on twitter and the world of sports analytics just off the phone with seth walder at espn talking sports analytics gonna flip onto a the team side of things welcoming onto the show repeat guest luke Bourne calling i'm guessing from the west coast we're about to find out luke is VP of Strategy and Analytics for the Sacramento Kings. He's also a professor of statistics at Simon Fraser University. Luke, appreciate you joining us this morning. Hey, thanks for having me on. Where are you calling in from at this early hour? Uh, Sacramento. Yeah, exactly. Thanks, thanks for thanks for making the sacrifice and getting to us this early in the morning. Um, 
Luke, we want to talk about whatever you're interested in talking about. I know, you know, it's always, we, we always like to talk to folks on the inside of teams, but it limits what you can, what you can tell us. And so let's hear a little bit about your work with the Kings. And then maybe we can talk about your work in soccer and what, what you're probably best known for is your work with motion tracking data was such a hot topic these days. So we're dying to hear more about that, but what, what's going on around Sacramento these days? What are you guys working on? Yeah. So we, uh, we're obviously, you know, 20 or so games into the season, just ramping up. Uh, and that means that, you know, on the, on the coaching side, they're very involved day to day on, uh, um, what's going on on the court. But for us as an analytics team, we think sort of tend to think much more big picture. So we're already thinking about, um, trade deadline. We're thinking about draft. We're thinking about agency. Right. We're thinking about much bigger projects. So, right. um, we're much less caught up in the day to day cycle of wins and losses and much more thinking about big projects infrastructure, modeling, all that kind of stuff. Got it. How, how would you characterize the state of analytics in the NBA? On the one hand, I think of, of them as having kind of leftover baseball in terms of sophistication. And we know, you know, MIT will tell you that, you know, 30, 29 out of 30 teams show up at their conference or whatever it is. But are, are there differences? Are some teams kind of much more deeply invested than others? How would you characterize it across the league? Yeah, there's a huge difference of investment. You have teams with, uh, you know, 10 to 12 analytics staff, and you also have teams that just still have sort of one token person. And mm-hmm. so there's a huge disparity. Um, there's nothing in, in basketball quite like what you have in baseball with some of the bigger teams, the Dodgers and Red Sox and so on, in terms of size of staff. But, but the NBA is getting there, and uh, one of the big reasons for that is, is tracking data, as you mentioned earlier, where teams have realized that, that this data is, just incredibly valuable in terms of the information they can extract from it. But they're also realizing that the skills that they have on staff um, are, need to be different. You know, the, the, uh, their analyst that they might have had five years ago who was great with Microsoft Excel doesn't have the tools, the, the technical skills needed to work with this new data. So that's why these uh, analytics teams are expanding. It does feel like an entirely different field of statistics to process. I mean, the tools that people are trained on, unless you've, you've worked with these kind of data before, are almost not relevant. Can, can, you, can you tell us about your evolution as a statistician? Because you jumped into this field relatively early. How did you make that decision? What tools did you have? How long did it take you to, to tool up and, and be functional? Yeah, so I'm, I'm a bit different than probably 99% of people doing sports analytics in that um, you know, most of the people I work with and that I, I meet at other teams have spent their whole life sort of in sports and wanting to work in sports. And so for them, the technical tools were things they acquired later to apply to their sport. For me, I came from it primarily as, as an academic, not, not from the sports side. So, you know, I have a PhD in, 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 um, in statistics and machine learning where I was looking at things like modeling movement of animals and movement of uh, climate systems and weather systems and so on. And so for me, um, I had those tools already, so for me, it was more about learning the sport and less about learning the. Uh, excuse me, less about learning the sort of technical skills. Luke, real quickly, wh- why would one study the movement of animals? Like, what was the application there? What was the interest there? Yeah, so like understanding herding dynamics and uh, um, in interaction and leadership dynamics amongst animals. Mm-hmm. Um, lots mm-hmm. of different different ones, but uh, you know, we're looking at seals and bison and all sorts of different things. And so you're developing tools to do that, and then and then the world, the sports world, just kind of all of a sudden, this this motion tracking thing just emerges literally from nowhere, yeah. simultaneously. Yeah, I was pretty early on that, and a lot of it was just pure fluke. Um, so I happened to be sitting in this meeting right after I started at Harvard. 
just happened a real fluke meeting where Kirk Goldberry walked by. Kirk, who's uh, um, you know spent some time at the Spurs, and I think you guys probably know that at the show. He um, he just at the time we he just had this fluke meeting, and he said, "Hey, I just got this uh, this tracking data, this player tracking data from the NBA." And he said, "Like I I have no idea what to do with it." And so the two of us uh, <laughs> sort of embarked on this task of having this data that we you know we had we sort of for me it was less about oh this is really cool from a sport perspective but when he showed me this data i decided this is the coolest the richest spatial temporal data that i've ever seen Mm -hmm. and so Mm -hmm. for me it was a real scientific challenge and then the two of us uh um, started a research group with a few phd students at harvard and and then that sort of has led to to where we are now the way that was talked about back at the time was that it was the data were so rich i mean rich is one nice way to put it but it can be overwhelming how raw it was and how multidimensional and that you had you know this team of people and this team of computers and it took all of this horsepower nobody else in the world you can't even deal with the data unless you have those kinds of resources at least that was kind of the story at the time to what extent is that true um i think it still is true in in some sense if you're dealing with the raw tracking data but at this point now, you also have companies that are doing a lot of the work of, of making it simpler for teams to work with tracking data. So, you know, you have in, in the NBA, you have uh, Second Spectrum. In hockey, you have SportLogic. You have these companies that are doing the tracking data to the point and then extracting information from it to the point where teams don't have to think about the raw sort of like tracking data, which comes to you at 25 times per second with every location on the court. Instead, what they're giving is essentially augmenting play-by-play data by telling you things like, okay, how many touches were in there in the paint? Where were screens set? Um, was it high pick and roll? Who was the primary ball handler? Who was the screener? Sort of using the, they're using machine learning tools to provide sort of additional annotations and uh, mm-hmm. markups to mm-hmm. existing play-by-play, which makes it much easier for, for teams without uh, a ton of technical expertise to to make some headway with this data. So, Luke, if that's the case, where is the potential edge for a team who wants to invest more deeply on this front? So, if I mean, in the extreme, if the league's providing the data in a fully processed form or if vendors, you know, you have a couple of outfits out there who are selling these these data, is there really an advantage for one team who to, to do something more than that? Or to yeah, it's a good question. Uh, I think you're seeing, you know, just like you see in baseball, you have teams investing big into R&D. So there's teams that have, um, you know, hiring PhDs in, in statistics and machine learning to try and develop new metrics uh, on top of um, data and MLB and in their farm systems. I think you have the same thing happening in basketball where teams say, well, you know, at, th- at this point, we're actually unclear what the value is. Right. Um, but when you're talking about hundreds of millions of dollars, um, it's not it's not hard that hard to, to rationalize. Okay, if we can get a point five percent edge or even a point one percent edge, that can be enough to to pay a salary. So, so Luke, this is Eric Prado. I want to ask you something. It's sort of specific to the Kings, but not. First of all, I want to congratulate you. I mean, the Kings have been one of the big surprises in the NBA this year in a positive sense. Um, specifically, uh, Kate asked you an earlier question about you know how much you guys kind of do long run versus short run. Obviously, the big things that have come both from motion tracking data is the speed of De'Aaron Fox. His, it's been noted in many, many studies that he's maybe the fastest player in the NBA. Uh, Buddy Heald seems to be able to create his own shots. I've looked at shots 
shot tracking data of how much space he's able to create for his shots. How much does those kinds of things influence, as you guys are even thinking about towards next year's draft, acquiring players, free agency, how much does that kind of data influence your thinking? I think it does a lot. I think part of it is realizing what what the the tools we have on our team. So obviously we have a bunch of incredibly athletic players. So De'Aaron Fox and Marvin Bagley and Willie Cauley-Stein and Buddy Heald, who you mentioned, and, and others as well. So these guys are incredibly, incredibly gifted, fast, explosive athletes. But and, fast and among the fast. Know, They're even fast among yeah. the fast. Yeah, in fact, people who haven't watched the Kings game recently should really watch it, and just I think you'll be amazed at the pace and how fast these guys move. Um, especially, you know, you see uh, some of the moves that they're able to do. So definitely, we think we think a lot about okay, how do we make decisions, not just sort of generic basketball decisions, but ones that are going to be tailored to the to the to the players we have on our team right now. And so, um, if you know, if we if we all of a sudden acquire a player who who is going to, you know, not going to be able to keep up up and down the court, of course, that's going to have uh, a negative impact on the team. So you always have to think about who you have on your roster and um, how how new pieces are going to fit in. And, of course, player tracking data really gives us the, the ability to do that because it allows us to really understand how players are moving. What, what about the prospects? You, don't, you won't have the same, or will you, player tracking information on a college player? Is that true? No, you're absolutely right. You're much more limited uh, outside of the NBA. Um, you're primarily getting play-by-play data, box score data, although that is changing, I think, over time as, as colleges are starting to install tracking systems. Uh, and also you have companies like SportLogic who's, who are doing tracking from broadcast feeds. Okay. Do you, can you work them out? I mean, could, if you, if you could, would you be happy to have data from, from the team if they worked a guy out and it was just in your gym and non-game situation? Could you use that in some way to evaluate him? Yeah, I think probably I would think about that less about, um, you know, how, what what percent of shots did he make or that kind of thing because that's typically going to be really small sample size. Sure. And think about it more so in terms of measuring the athletic capabilities. Right. So, um Things like, you know, 40-meter sprint and vertical jump and those kinds of things. Yeah. So, Luke, let me ask you a question. Um, we always criticize on this show a lot. It, these guys criticize me because I'm one of these junkies that watches the combine in football 24-7. Like, I want to know who's running a 4-3-2 versus a 4 We don't criticize you. We make fun of you. Those are different yeah. things. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. It's, it's, well, it's jealousy that you seem to have, like, it, it, 40 hours in your day somehow. Well, whatever. Criticize right. and make fun of me. How do you not get caught... I'll ask you in a general sense and then a more statistical sense. How do you not get caught in just drafting people or bringing people in based purely on measurables? And, you know, if I was going to look at this, is there a diminishing marginal return to speed or athleticism? Like once you're athletic enough, once you're fast enough, you know, do you fit nonlinear functions and say, yep, it would be great to be a little bit faster. But at some point, there's a threshold beyond which a little bit faster is not actually going to translate to the court. So it actually might be the other way around. It might be that that you know once you can reach up to speed of the NBA, maybe you have to hit that certain level to to be into the NBA, and then it doesn't matter. But there's a point where the athleticism starts to really really matter because you can jump higher than everyone, you can get past them, you can uh, on a one on one you can beat them. Uh, in terms of the measurement side of things, I think that's it's a really interesting question. One thing we think a lot about is that. Is, is not just about how measurements and how college-level data sort of translates to the NBA, but we also think a lot about how um, how the consensus or how people are biased in terms of how they think about players transitioning from uh, college to the NBA. 
And so we think a lot about what do, historically, what do people over and under value? Because the key thing is that um, in most uh, draft models, if you look at, for instance, like ESPN's draft model, you'll see that, you know, they're incorporating the consensus rank, uh, the media consensus into their model. And this has been sort of standard for years now. And so, of course, what you end up with is really bizarre things where a model will actually, once you sort of condition or once you use the information from what people are saying, it can actually often say that certain metrics and certain measurables are negative in, in the model, which is to say that the the people, the media, are actually overvaluing these things. Right, so absolutely. So to downweight mm-hmm. them in the model. Mm-hmm. So look, let me ask you a related question. When you guys are thinking, without, it's not giving away any secret sauce, like when you guys at the Kings are thinking about the draft, I'll make it up. Let's suppose next year you guys end up in the, right now you're in the playoffs, but let's say you end up in the playoffs, you're drafting 17th, 18th, I guess, well, you have a, there's a draft pick situation with the Sixers, et cetera, but let's ignore that for a second. Um, do you actually model out how the teams ahead of you might draft? Do you start to build models for the behavior of other teams and starting to think about how that might influence you both in the draft and in trades? Or is that just um, too sophisticated what, to do? It's hard enough to model yourself. Forget about modeling other teams. <laughs> yeah, I think, I think that's the right answer. I think um, you know, if you've been around sports long enough to... Um, to know the, the folly in trying to assume rationality in, of sports teams. So, mm-hmm. um, but the truth is that there's always a lot of conjecture and a lot of people um, trying to uh, trying to estimate what people will do in front of us. But it's it's really hard, and it really comes it really is uh, a guess. So we really want to think about valuing, um, working on our own, and thinking about what um, how we value players and how we value different tiers of the draft you know does it make sense to move up does it make sense to move down um how does this player fit in with our current roster all those kinds of things mm-hmm. really think about that in isolation and and if there is an opportunity you know we'll look at rosters of other teams because it may be okay like let's take an extreme example imagine that the the draft has 10 straight point guards right um and and you're you're pick number 11 well if those teams in front of you some of them probably don't need a point guard and maybe mm-hmm. you do right mm-hmm. so you know that's where that's the sort of really typical example where teams will realize, okay, you know, I'm I'm sitting here at pick number two. The next player that I want is actually probably going to go pick number eleven, and so it doesn't make sense for me to pick him here. Let's try and trade back. Right, right. So, um, that's most of the dynamics is you're thinking about yourself saying, hey, I, it, where we're going to be picking, there's probably not the right fit there, and so let's try and either move back or move up. So we're talking to Luke Bourne. Luke is the VP of Strategy and Analytics for the Sacramento Kings. He is also a professor of statistics at Simon Fraser. Luke, before you were at Sacramento, you worked in a number of places, but including AS Roma, the soccer team, and would love to hear more about your work in soccer. On the way to that, I want to ask you a question that's that's kind of um, sport neutral, but you come out of academic training. And you said most people in sports analytics, you know, have always worked in sports in some way. What role, how important do you think it is to actually be around the sport? And to, are you, a, to what extent are you a more effective analyst if you understand the game, if you spend time with scouts and coaches and players? Or, or do you think there's value in having kind of a divide there and more independence? Yeah, I think my... My take, and this is maybe not strongly held, as I might be a bit of an outlier here, is, is that it's much easier to teach someone the nuances of the sport than it is to teach them the nuances of, you know, confounding in a in a neural network or some, you know, technical, some tech, technical modeling thing. Mm-hmm. Um, one thing about about our sort of North American society is that we are 
constantly braided with sports and the sports all around us. So even people who would say that they're not sports people tend to know the rules, tend to know the players, tend to know basic strategy and so on. So, um, and of course, that's not something I would say on the technical side. It's not some not like someone who did a degree in, in philosophy just has a has a great or has a, has a sort of baseline understanding of how um, random forests work, right. right? Or some some machine learning technique. Whereas someone who knows random forests will probably have a good idea what the offside rule is in soccer. Right. Soccer, excuse me. So we, we, we bring a, a person trained in that way inside a sports organization. You've been in a few now. What have you seen organizations do or individual analysts do that make them a better, more effective analyst by getting to know the guys or getting to know the sport? Have you, what have you seen or what differences have you seen about how people go about that? Yeah, I think the main thing is that people coming with a non-sport background really have to learn the language and the jargon. Um, you know, when you think about our coaches of the Kings, they, they, these guys are experts in, in sort of X, Ys on what's going on in the court. But they have a ton of language around around that. And so when you're coming in, you might understand the basics of screens and, and pick and rolls and that kind of thing. But, you know, they have all these terms um, – horns and out the elbow and you know all these like different locations on the court and different sets that they run that um it's really it, it's it's you probably if you saw this this the set you'd say okay oh that makes that makes sense but you don't know it's necessarily and um i think that's one thing that people find challenging this this huge vocabulary this huge dictionary that they have to learn of of the new the, the phrases that people use of course when i was in, in at roma you had the further challenge of language. And so, um, <laughs> yeah, you, uh, you know, learn the Italian version of all those terms. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So um, one thing I tend to, I often say to people is that when I was at Rome, I got really good at data visualization because uh, ah. you know, I had to communicate things in a very non-verbal way. <laughs> That's fantastic. Well, listen, one of the one of the the urban legends. I'm curious what truth there is to this uh, about your time at Roma is that. The, you quote signed Mo Salah before he got eventually sold to Liverpool. So this is a guy who led the Premier League in scoring last year. Is that right? It's one of the most exciting young guys in the league. Can you give us any history on on your role in in identifying him and signing him to Roma? Yeah, I think when you, it, I think it's it's too hard when you're within the club to ever take credit for anything. There's there's so many moving pieces. There's mm-hmm. so many people involved. Um, and, and ultimately, you know, the analytical piece is just that it's one piece. And so there's a lot of people from the scouts to the sporting directors, to the medical staff who are involved in this. Um, and so, you know, like in any, like in the NBA, any, any trade, any acquisition is really, um, multiple, multiple pieces coming into it. And analytics is just one of those pieces. Got it. In terms of analytics, and this is going to help us better understand what's going on with soccer. What can you give us some sense of what you saw in your data that allowed you to identify this guy that has, is so phenomenal now? It's hard to imagine that he was so unappreciated at the time. Like, how did that pop out of your yeah. day? What were you doing? It, we understand lots of people influenced this decision, but but the analytics was one input. What was it that was popping out? How? What kind of analytics revealed that? I think. You know, it's, it's one of those things, even the questions you're asking about MBA, they might sound like you're giving away some secret, but, but the truth is that most of this is very um, entirely sort of public. And so if you look at what people are doing in soccer, it's things like, are they generating shots? Are they um, part of like a sequence of passes that lead to shots? And if you if you look at how many um, um, opportunities that a player creates, um, you can get a really good value of that player. And so, you know, I think the simplest thing to do is look at goals, you know, goal scored per 90 minutes or something like that. But of course, now there's more 
intelligent ways to do that. You can goals are pretty random, and so you can look at okay, how many expected goals this player has, and and then also sort of backtrack it to say how many expected goals assisted does this player have, and you know sort of try and back propagate the value of goals sort of mm-hmm. backwards in time. So, mm-hmm. so Lucas, you know, we are doing any. Oh, sorry. Yeah, I was going to say no, this. Uh, saying we weren't necessarily doing anything that was that uh, that crazy novel. This Eric Bradley, and I want to relate your comment about speed in the NBA to speed in soccer. So one of the things I've always thought about soccer is um, because if you have a really fast striker, let's say, uh, this person may create tremendous opportunities for other players. Do you link your thinking at all from your time in soccer to your time in basketball to say, look, even if this really fast player in basketball or in soccer doesn't score himself, he may create opportunities for other people just because of the speed? Yeah, there's a tremendous amount that that one sport can learn from another, and soccer and basketball are definitely two of the most similar. Uh, I think hockey probably also has a lot of similarities in terms of the way players use their movement to create space. So one of my PhD students is actually a data scientist at uh, FC Barcelona, his name is Javier Fernandez, and we did a project at Sloan last year looking at uh, space creation. And you know what you were saying there about a striker being able to sort of create space for his teammates. We actually found this really interesting thing that, that Lionel Messi, one of the things that he does is sort of by by walking and by standing still, he creates a lot of value, uh, creates a lot of space for his teammates. In fact, one of the most on his team. And so the the, the simplest way to think about that is, you know, if, if, I, if I go and watch my six-year-old play soccer, they tend to run and kick and chase the ball. And you can imagine that that still happens a little bit at the pro level. And so um, Lionel Messi knows when not to chase the ball and when to stay in a spot and let the play drift away from him so that he ends up in the space, which, um, you know, and then the defender stays behind and, and, and ultimately gets dragged out of position. And so um, I think it's not just about, you know, the speed, although that's a part of it. It's also about having really smart players. And you can actually measure that with tracking data for players like uh, Lionel Messi. And I, it's sort of like, as you say that, it sort of hits a chord for my, you know, like I, I have some experience evaluating baseball players in terms of their fielding ability. And their fielding ability also was partly about their speed, their kind of range of like, if a ball is hit, how quickly can they move to cover it? But it's also about positioning, you know, like like certain players somehow have a better intuition or, or, or can use their experience to better position themselves before the ball is even in the air. Yeah, for sure. There's initial positioning. There's also your ability to choose the right route to where the mm-hmm. ball's going to land. And then, of course, as you say, the speed. So, um, of course, people are probably focused on speed similar to having soccer because that's just the easiest one to measure. Um, and it's the easiest one to see with your own eyes. It's hard to um, it's hard to sort of know without either using statistical methods or just watching a lot of video to say, actually, this guy is really good at positioning himself. It's much easier to say, oh, he's fast. Luke, you're, you mentioned this this paper at MIT, so it was one of the awarded papers, if I remember correctly, and it's a it's a phenomenal piece of work, and it's all it's it is at one level a description of what happens in soccer, and it feels like the the field of soccer analytics, and especially with motion tracking data, is somewhat in search of good metrics. Still, it's sufficiently new that they're just kind of figuring out what's the right way to structure these things, what are the right way to think about these things. Is that one way you think about that paper? We're creating kind of a space creation metric or you could or, or, or we could we could we can characterize players at their ability to create space is that part of what's going on and the more general question is what happens next now that you've described soccer in that way yeah so i think i think you're absolutely right that one of the challenges with soccer analytics is that people are having a tough time because a lot of what happens in soccer happens away from the ball so traditional metrics which look at um 
which measure the essentially the event data that people have had for decades now, is primarily on ball. So it's looking at the passes and pass receptions and tackles and shots and things that happen with the ball. But of course, soccer is a lot about positioning and movement and how players are, are creating space for each other, creating imbalances on the pitch. You know, if you go back to the origins of, of sports analytics and you look at baseball, baseball is really is almost entirely measured by what happens on the ball. Of course, as mm-hmm. I said earlier, there's a bit about positioning and fielding and so on. But if you capture the the, the, the pitch information and the exit velocity of the ball, um, you're, you're capturing a really big chunk of, of what's going on in the game. Whereas in contrast, soccer is at the other side where there's so much that's happening away from the ball where players are creating value. Um, this is one of the reasons, an example, why um, you know, Seth, who you guys had on earlier, wrote this great article about the analytical arms race in the NFL. And one of the reasons that they are all of a sudden seeing this big analytical explosion is because they have this new tracking data, which all of a sudden allows them to measure the game in ways they actually care about. So before, they would get you know, very basic, high-level right. data on what was happening with the ball. And it missed so many sort of of the, the salient features of what's going on in the game. Mm-hmm. And now they have this tracking data where they can see every route that every player runs, all this stuff that's happening away from the ball, how players are drawing linemen out of position, how they're, um, you know, they're following their formations and how those formations are creating space and creating opportunity. And um, so just like soccer, the tracking data and, and, and all these off-ball measurements are finally getting to a point where our understanding of the game, our analytical understanding of those games is starting to more reflect the way coaches think and talk about the game. Mm-hmm. What's another example of an off-ball measurement you might think is coming up or you might be working on or you might be interested in? Yeah, so you know, creating space in, both for yourself and others is a very, very simple example of that. Um, another off-ball one is thinking about the way players create passing lanes, the players that are uh, getting themselves into position to receive the ball. Um, but in, another example might be, so Barcelona, they always talk about this third pass, which is players who put themselves into a position where they they are sort of become a middleman between two other players. So hmm. it might be that there's a really high-value pass between the person that has the ball and some other player, but this, this player's maybe in the way, right? And so they can't make that pass. And so looking at players that create, become that third man to make that pass possible by sort of transitioning through that player. So, wow. Um, there's all these techniques that are done in soccer that uh, you just can't you just can't do with event data, and so um, now with tracking data, we can actually measure these things. The, the description there of that third pass reminds me of structural hole analysis and in, in network studies, it's almost exactly parallel to that. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, the, the, you're you're looking at players this way. What what edge do you think there is in in being able to characterize some guys and their ability to you know make this create this third pass or or create space for themselves or others now that you can once you can characterize players on these dimensions where they've never been characterized before at least not you know quantitatively to what extent you see different players as valuable than you did before and how much difference is that so i'm just curious in terms of player personnel how big an edge do you think exists here or opportunity you know, I think that's that's an open question. I don't think we've we've answered that question yet. Mm-hmm. I think um, there's still a lot of debate in soccer what the value is, where the value is. Mm-hmm. Um, partially because it's just such a hard sport to measure. There's no like one of the biggest things that when you start working with this this data is you realize that in soccer there's really no clear notion of possession. And so in 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 baseball or or American football or in um, basketball we have a clear notion of possession you can sort of say okay this team had the ball for this period of time and then 
you know, in basketball, and then uh, you know, then this other team has the ball, or in, or in American football, you have these really discrete sort of plays. Um, in soccer, you have this sort of constant flowing dynamics, and you have this really bizarre thing that oftentimes teams think about. There's teams whose strategy is to get offensive uh, advantage by not having the ball. So by letting the other team have the ball, by pressuring them into situations mm-hmm. where they're going to turn over the ball and sort of compromise positions. Mm-hmm. Um, and so there's there's no other sort of real clear analogy to to, to other sports where, where teams are thinking about and and underlying strategy is like let's build offensive actions without the ball mm-hmm. you know when the other team has the ball and that makes it really really hard and that makes it uh, because of that I think there's this still ambiguity about where is the value can we even measure those things yet um, and how does that translate to uh, to win right right it makes it terrifically interesting it's gonna be terrifically interesting to watch for some time. Luke, we're going to let you go, but we really appreciate your taking time to be with us this morning, especially this early in the morning out there on the West Coast. Yeah, thanks for having me on. Absolutely. That's Luke Bourne, VP of Strategy and Analytics for the Sacramento Kings. Previously, he was with AS Roma doing soccer analytics. He is also an assistant professor of statistics at Simon Fraser. This has been three quarters of Wharton Moneyball. We still have a quarter to go. Come back and join us after the break. Welcome back to Wharton Moneyball. Two hours of sports analytics live every Wednesday morning, 8 to 10 Eastern AM. That is Cade Massey hosting this morning with Eric Bradlow and Shane Jensen. Audie was here for the first half hour before he had to step away to the classroom. Some combination of us are here every Wednesday morning. You can join the conversation. Give us a ring. The number 1-844-WHARTON, 942 7866 or drop us an email businessradio at SiriusXM.com businessradio at SiriusXM.com you can also send us questions on Twitter at WMoneyBall at WMoneyBall we follow all of our guests we comment periodically not a bad way to stay on top of the world of sports analytics just off the phone with Luke Bourne good lord that was good guys oh amazing he, he's as he, I, I believe he's as good as it gets in the world of motion tracking analytics he's, I think he's the gold standard He's worked in multiple sports. He writes academic papers. He works with teams. And that is the most important frontier in sports analytics. More and more teams are going to get into it. It's just completely open. Well, I think it's not just motion for on-field performance, but it could easily be a sign of injury. There could be a sign of for training and analytics, totally. for scouting and drafting, totally. for building a team. I think that's why I think motion tracking is the forefront because it touches not just the on-field performance, right. but yeah. all the things you have to and, build no, and on. I'm, and I mean, I, I'm glad you kind of brought up the sort of injury part of things because I kind of feel like I mean, obviously, we can talk about like you know this very detailed data giving you know I mean, Luke, I think talked about like oh, if you can get like a one percent like edge or a point five percent edge, maybe that would pay somebody's salary. I mean, in terms of preventing an injury, you, you I mean, you prevent one injury and you've paid a salary off, right? You know, like an a- analyst's salary off, right? Another, so, I mean, like, I, I think the injury prevention right, right. part of things is like an even more direct sort of, I think, is going to more direct, even more directly save teams money than these kind of like very subtle nuances in player evaluation, essentially. I think the other part that'll be interesting is since basketball games, let's obviously it's with the Kings right now, since basketball games aren't played in 10 second stretches, you may have a player that has great peak speed, but they can't withstand that with maintain that speed. So what you may end up finding out from this motion tracking day, which I'm really fascinated about, is how long can people stay at their peak level? Like there may mm-hmm. maybe this is a sign of poor conditioning, or maybe it's just a you know who like you know we've always had the guy from uh, Jeff 
the the from the Wynnum Studios, Jeff Cedar, yeah. the horse guy, who says every horse slows down in a race. Some horses just slow down less. <laughs> right. And so my guess is every NBA player slows down during a game. Maybe some just slow down less, yeah, and they can they keep mm-hmm. their peak speed mm-hmm. for a longer period of time. And so I don't think it's just the peak speed. I think he's going to open up a whole new world. And what's the distribution of speed within a player across a game? Right. You know, just off the top of our head, we've created three interesting questions here, and we could just keep going. It is such an open area. It's all we're going to talk about in sports analytics 10 years from now. It's the only thing we're going to be using, and teams, some teams just don't get that yet. All right, changing sports, another sport that does have motion tracking, and as Luke said, is very similar to basketball and soccer, is hockey. And my beloved Buffalo Sabres, where I've cut my hockey teeth watching these guys play back in the old odd, back in the day, are doing something unusual. What's going on with the NHL, Eric? Well, so they were last last year in the NHL, yeah. last on the basis of points. Um, they did made a lot of moves in the offseason, and they're the first team. Now, of course, it's only 25 games into the season, but they're the first team ever to go from worst to first. At this point in the at season. At this point in the season. That actually, I mean, that just as alone as a statistic kind of surprises me. Because, I mean, I, I mean, it is impressive, don't get me wrong, to go all the way from worst all the way to first, but... You know, we're only 25 games in. The the fact that this has not happened in decades is... I guess that just surprised me because I sort of see see hockey as, as as a as a sport where team, teams do move, the rankings do change a lot year they, to year. They do absolutely, they absolutely do. And so I was just wondering to myself, so how rare is that? So actually, it was very easy. I just yeah. you know went on to I just went on to Google and googled worst to first. So here are some from other major sports. So one is um, in 1998, the Rams in football were four and twelve. The next year, they were 13-3 and three and won the NFL title. That's a big swing, especially in the NFL. All right. In 2007-2008, the Celtics, or 2006-2007, the Celtics had 24 wins. They then got these two guys, uh, Kevin Garnett and Ray yeah. Allen, yeah. and they won 66 games from 24 to 66 and won the NBA title. Your beloved Red Sox, you know this date as well as anybody. In 2012, the Red Sox were 69-93. and 93. In 2013, they were 97 and 65, and they won the title. So, in all three major sports, it has happened recently. And even if I took football, were the Red Sox the worst record in they baseball? Were the, they were the worst record in baseball at 60, or oh. bottom two at 69 okay. and 93, and then right. went to 97 and 65 and actually won the title. Yeah. So I was just interested for myself. How rare is this of worst to first? Yeah. And it just—I mean, I'm not saying it's not yeah. rare, but it's not like one in ten thousand, one in a hundred thousand rare. Eric, if you were gonna. Let's not do it now, but if you were going to try to norm, you're comparing across sports and these things obviously aren't apples to apples. So how would you norm those four examples you just gave to understand how unique, maybe hockey is less unique, maybe it's more unique? Yeah, so a couple ways I would do it. So first, you can actually look at the change in the number. Forget whether they won the title or not, just for a second, because you know, I'll use the Shane Jensen rule. There's a bunch of coin flips going on there. Yeah. Um, first, you could look at just the number of you could you could look at percentage improvement, or you could look at a p-value, a tail error, and here's what I mean. The Celtics went from 24 wins to 66 wins. That's a 42-win change. Let's compare that to the distribution of all win changes, but this actually relates to something that um, we talked about in the second half hour as well. 
I can't look at it for all teams because a 50-win team can't go up by 42 wins. Yeah. So I have to bin the data. I have to look at all teams that, let's say, were in a certain win range or near the bottom. How many of them improved by 42? Look at that histogram. See how impressive 42 is and yeah. say, among teams that were from, I'll make it up, 15 to 25 wins, how many of, which happens a lot in a lot of seasons, how many of them go up by 40 plus wins? And you might find this is one in a thousand. You could do the same calculation right. for football. How many teams are in the two to four win range, which is not uncommon in football? In fact, that's the normal minimum number of wins for right. teams. How many of them go from four to 13 wins? You could do the same thing yeah. in baseball. And so just compute a p value, a tail area. How, on the empirical distribution for that respective sport, how rare is that occurrence? And I think you would find, this is my belief, I'm convinced, I'm with you, Shane, I'm actually surprised this hadn't been done in hockey. Like, I'm surprised this this seems rare, but it shouldn't be as rare as it is in other sports. I mean, the baseball one, I didn't realize the yeah, Red Sox I'm, I'm, were that bad. No, I was, before you met, reminded me of the Red Sox, um, I would have said, oh, it's basically impossible in baseball because, you know, you've got this kind of, you know, this payroll imbalance that almost I, I would have thought essentially guarantees a worse from first from not happening that like you 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 have basically you know these couple teams at the bottom that are there's no chance that they right would actually so one go to well, first. one plausible argument you would have to make and I think you'd agree this is a plausible guess, argument no here's one argument is that in uh, 2012 they did win 69 games but their true strength was maybe yeah. more like 500. We just happen to observe 69. It can happen. You could yeah. lose 10 more games than you think you should have. Maybe bad closer. Who knows? And then what happens is, no, they weren't 28 games better in 2013. They were 10 to 12 games better. And so, yeah, that's possible. And so maybe that's what's surprising yeah. us in some way. It's just maybe 69 is not their real number yeah, for yeah. 2012. So speaking of unlikely events, Philip Rivers did a little something unlikely on Sunday. Were you paying attention to that at all? I mm -hmm. was very much paying attention because at one point, I, as I remember in the game, he had no incomplete passes in the game. And so at some point I was wondering, is he going to go the entire... It's not like his first pass was incomplete and then he threw 20... Oh, it started. I can see here he started 25 for 25. Yeah. So actually, it is an interesting phenomenon. I think phenomenon. that's a record for it just, is. to, to start a game. You know, I have to admit, I was wondering, since they were blowing out the other team, at some point does the coach say, look, don't throw any more passes. You'll well, you got a record. <laughs> Look, they were up. They won the game like forty-eight ten or something yeah, like that. Yeah. Don't throw any more passes. You'll go down in the record books as the only quarterback to have an undef <laughs> in some sense a perfect game. I have to admit, I was thinking that at uh, some point in time. It's not what happened. He ended up only twenty-eight of twenty-nine. So remind me what the Phil Sims Super Bowl record is. It Phil Sims? He was twenty. I think it was either twenty-two of twenty-three or twenty-two of twenty-four. Maybe was that high? I it was, was like twenty-two of mm -hmm. twenty-eight. No, 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 no. It was, it was just a couple. I mean, I'm of sure Matt can put it up on the screen. It was only maybe twenty-two of twenty-five, something like that. Okay. But it was a you know eighty-five plus percent completion percentage in the Super Bowl. Do it, you do you believe in the Chargers? What do you, what do you what? Oh yeah, do you no, I think them? I think they're the second best team in the AFC. Um, right now. I mean, they just happen to have the bad luck of playing in the same well, division as Kansas So one Kansas of the things City. I was looking at right now is, and we could debate about the Texans maybe in a second, although they yeah. have won eight straight. Um, there are five... Against, like, nobody, but all right. But there are five... Well, they're going to be playing somebody soon, if you look at their schedule. But there are five teams in the AFC right now that it wouldn't be shocking. Maybe the Texans are, would be shocking. But the Chiefs are 9-2. and two. Yeah. The Chargers are 8-3. The Patriots are eight and three. The Texans are eight and three, and the Steelers lost a bad game to Denver, but they're seven three and one. Except for maybe the Texans, 
Would it shock you if the Steelers, Patriots, Chargers, or Chiefs went to the Super Bowl? No. Right. So that's my point. I think the AFC this year, I've never seen it more competitive. And I think what it's going to come down to is there are a couple key games. For example, the Steelers are playing the Patriots. That is going that to be game a is going, key it, game. Yeah. It's going to be a key game because it may well decide. I don't, who knows if one of them is going to be the one seed, but it may well decide which one of them is going to be the two seed, which means, as you know, you get a week off, you get home field. It, I don't want to say it does this, but it, it raises your probability of making it to the AFC championship game dramatically. Well, the bye does. No, the, the bye, bye does. itself, but also home field in yeah, the second sure, round sure. is not. Yeah. I mean, it, yeah. But real quickly, the bye, look how big the difference the bye makes. If you look at our the Massive Peabody simulation on the likelihood of making the you know let's call it making the super bowl and if you take the four you know well we've got a, a we've got a you know five including the texans you want to exclude the texans let's take the four top that that eric was talking about pat steelers chiefs and chargers the teams that well the patriots have to be well first of all the patriots have to have the largest probability i would think of those teams to win their division Oh, it's almost guaranteed. It's ninety nine. Casey's is eighty seven. But the, my point is that 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 we think these teams are roughly in the same category in terms of quality. But the two that are likely to get the buys are the Pats and the Chiefs, and it greatly increases their chance of yeah. making the Super Bowl. Yeah, the Pats actually, as we talked about last week on air, the Patriots have a very easy schedule uh, remaining. Mm-hmm. Um, as I, does Houston. So I mean, I, I think know, Houston's going to be. The, I agree with you. The Steelers, by the way, if I remember correctly, oh, they've got they've got. Schedule. I think it's something like the Saints. The Chargers and the Chiefs. I mean, they've got an unbelievable. That's they just could I'm not so lose that game to, to Denver. That. I'm just so uh, yeah. sorry. <laughs> they just could not <laughs> yeah. lose that game last week. That was just there was just a terrible yeah. loss mm-hmm. for them, um, and it may well determine that you know they're going to be. I mean, you know, I, I they. I mean, if they beat New England, then suddenly we're talking having a very different conversation. They still about may the lose two other was. games, but yeah. yes. What did you think about Cleveland and, and how and how they're pulling things together this year? Oh, it's fantastic. I think it's wonderful. I, I mean, like I, I think. I mean, I think I think we we always talk about how coaching matters a lot in in, in, in the NFL, um, and it's rare that we kind of see like get get a chance to sort of like see maybe at least what we would interpret as some tangible kind of effect of that. But I mean, we're, we're seeing the Browns just take off and you, after and he, you, I'm reading in. I'm re- <laughs> I'm reading into it. What that, what what quality of coaching is it? Play calling or is it culture or or accountability and we don't know all we, we we don't know all but if you like win one game in two years you're probably pretty bad at a lot of those metric uh, <laughs> on a lot of those dimensions well um, you might you might put it on the players but if if, if you, you leave could. and all of a sudden the players are winning exactly okay. right yeah okay. so i mean i'm i'm just kind of now, excited i'm excited it? for i'm excited for baker what, mayfield what's to be honest what, speaking of mayfield yeah. to be fair you're talking about a guy who's going from zero nfl experience to a season's worth of nfl mm-hmm. nfl experience which is a big growth curve yes and so you it's a, you know you might expect them Confou- to be improving his, pretty dramatically. His improvement does confound the situation. This is not entirely an indictment of Hugh Jackson, but mm-hmm. I mean, I, I do do any of us think that actually Hugh Jackson had a positive effect on that team? You know, it, it sure does seem like people don't think so. I, was, I, I don't know anything, but my gosh, he's taking a lot of shots from a lot of quarters. The thing that's mm-hmm. interesting about Cleveland is if you remember their early games in the season where they were going to beat the Saints. 
They had an extra point yeah. to beat the Saints. They had a 30-yard field goal to beat. I forget who it was as well. Which they tied the Steelers, too, yeah, right? But yeah, but they had a 30-yard field goal or 35-yarder to win that game. Yeah. What's interesting about Cleveland is they're 4-6-1, and one, and I don't think their record could be worse than that. Like, yeah. you could easily come up with an argument. They could be 6-4 and four right mm-hmm. now. And then we'd be talking about in the AFC, or 6-5, and five. in the AFC we'd be saying, well, they're in the playoff hunt. Yeah. I mean, I'm saying, if you look game by game at their yeah, record, yeah. a lot of people yeah. say, well, you could have done better. They couldn't have done worse. 4-6-1 yeah. and one is the worst they could be right now, given how they've played. And, you know, New Orleans just keeps on stepping out. We have them now not only number one in the league, but opening up a two-point a two point difference, a two-point gap to number two, which is the Rams, and a four-point gap over KC, New England, L.A., it's just, I mean, they yeah. really um, step Unless out there. there's some stumble, which there could be, um, if they have home field throughout the NFC, that's going to be problematic. Of yes. course, their only loss this year was at home. Oh, it was to the Buccaneers. Oh, <laughs> it's magic. It's magic. Isn't that going to be ironic? If the only, on it their might be their only record. loss of the year. Yeah. It may be their only loss of the year. It was game week one, 48 to 40 to the Buccaneers yeah. it, at home. Do you think? Do you think some teams, do you think it's, are we just telling stories that some teams are more consistent than other teams? And is this an important dimension to consider as you're going to playoffs? Wait, do you mean game to game or game season to, to season? Game oh, to game to game. game. Yeah. Um, yeah, I think pro- I, I, I'm not sure it would be an easy thing for us to kind of tease out or. But I, yeah, I mean, I kind of anecdotally kind of feel anecdotally like, it feels yeah, that way, right? And I mean, you you look at like to you know, I, I again, I think there's some New England statistic like it's been. Many, many years since they've lost three games in a row, for example. Mm-hmm. You can kind of look at, like, how often do teams go on, you know, mm-hmm. long losing streaks or long winning streaks. And that's mm-hmm. some measure of Well, maybe here's another way to think about it, and maybe right, let's see if you yeah. agree with this. Let's imagine, let's for the moment imagine you have to win three games to win the Super Bowl. Let's just say for the moment you have to win three. Yeah. It could be different for different teams. Are Are you a team, let's say your true strength is somewhere like a 600, 650 winning percentage team. The question is, are you always a 650 winning percentage team, or are you sometimes yeah. a 750 team and sometimes a 500 team? For and sure. It's, and so, of course, if you're a 7, like, let's say you're the say the Pittsburgh, you wouldn't be shocked if the Steelers beat the Patriots. No. No. But here's the thing. In the playoffs, are they consistent enough yeah. to win three games against top quality and, opponents? And, and that's and, what you and, have and, to question. Their mean might be the yeah. same, but and their variance in, is higher. It's interesting that you bring up the Steelers because I think really what, you know, if we want to start looking at variance, uh, uh, teams as being high variance or low variance, I think in part what drives that is, of course, in the football, the quarterback is such an important part of your team's performance. And. I've watched Roethlisberger enough over the years. He is a high-variance quarterback. I mean, when he is on his game, it's pretty much impossible to stop him. But then you look at you know that tough loss that they just had to Denver. I mean, that was a terrible, terrible pass, a terrible interception to end that game. And he does that every once in a while. You know, I mean, last year they had a he threw something like three or four picks against uh, Jacksonville in a very big game last Correct. year as well. He and, lost I mean, them that game, and so. You know, when you have a situation like that, I think that does that can't uh, help but drive a kind of team's inconsistency if the quarterback is inconsistent in their own performance. Well, can you Fist remember Magic being a great example? Well, as well. Ask, can you can you remember the la- the last bad playoff game uh, Tom Brady had? Um, 
Yeah, I mean, he 2005 against Denver. All right, he did not play well. all right. Well, 2000. Um, he's only probably had 30 playoff games. Well, I so mean, 40 there, there's since probably then. been one since uh, bef- since then. I just I, it, he does not play a lot of bad playoff games. Yeah, yeah, that's right. So l- let's just note before we leave that we we don't we should think about teams as having a distribution of performance. And obviously, teams have different means. Some teams' mean distribute mean performance is higher than others. But it's but they're taking draws essentially from a distribution. And what we're speculating on is whether some teams' distributions have higher variance. Also, it's the classic thing. If you have really high mean, you want really low variance. But if you have uh, okay mean, you'd rather have higher variance. Absolutely. And so this is the issue. So I'd rather be, yeah, 750 team that always plays 750. But if you're going to be the 600 team, maybe I get on a run in the playoffs and I get three draws of an 800 team. Well, we can dive into more concrete details about the NFL with our usual way of wrapping up the show. Moneyball matchups. All right, Eric Bradlow, looks like we have a good slate this week. Why don't you lead us through it? All right, well, for this week, um, by the way, I'm not going to pick the Tampa Bay Buccaneers. But by the way, I'm going to be in an in- uh, not, it's not an interesting game, but I'm going to be at the Buffalo Bills at Miami Dolphins game this week. Uh, but that's not uh, here nor there. That's not the game I'm picking. Where, I'm, where you're in the, Miami? In Miami. Okay. Yeah, I'm going to be in Miami for that game. Um, there are two games. I'm going to pick two games in combination because they have big influence. So um, if you think about the Philadelphia Eagles, our home team here, um, they're 5-6. and six. Um, The playoffs started already. In other words, they had to beat the Giants last mm-hmm. week. They got... We could argue, debate whether they got lucky. They beat the Giants. They did not look impressive. They did but not did look win. impressive. They won the game. Well, there's two games this week that will greatly influence them. First of all, they're playing on Monday night this week. The Redskins at here at home in Philadelphia. The Eagles must win that game. Yeah. If the Eagles lose that game, they're going to be out of the playoffs. Because besides being five and seven, which would eliminate them from wild card contention, it would be a division loss, a conference loss. Already, their conference record is not good. The Eagles must win that game. Let's say for the moment they win that game. Fortunately for the Eagles, the leader of the division, the 6-5 and five Cowboys, have a slightly difficult game as well. <laughs> yeah. The Saints are at the Cowboys on Thursday yeah. night. So I'm just going to play out the scenario. The Eagles beat the Redskins. The Eagles are about a 7-point, 6.5-point favorite. The Saints beat the Cowboys. The Saints are a 7-point favorite. Well, we now all of a sudden, two weeks ago, the Eagles were dead and buried. Now they're tied in a three-way tie None, at six and Nobody's dead and buried in that division. Well, there will be a three-way. Well, you agree with me. It's likely there will be a three-way tie at the end of this week yeah. with the Giants. Not the Giants, sorry. The Cowboys, Redskins, and Eagles all at six and six. And the good news, if you're an Eagles fan, they have one remaining game against the Cowboys. It's in Dallas, unfortunately. But And then they still also have another game left mm-hmm. against the Redskins. So, you know, everybody wants to control their own destiny. Well, if the Eagles win those three games, both against the Redskins and against the Cowboys, they're going to win the division. Oh, agreed, agreed. And yeah, then there's no, no reason right. then that, I mean, as you said, I mean, yeah, it's they're, really right. they're come not going to be a one or two things, seed, but they if, can win the pl- I mean, if, if things go, come, go down to expectations, Go by kind of our expectations. It's going to be that remaining game against the Cowboys. I think is going to make the biggest difference. I, I would agree. So that's so, Kate. It's two games caught my eye: the Eagles game against the Redskins, which I think the Eagles are going to win. Because yeah. I think without Alex Smith, I just don't think Colt McCoy. There's just not enough consistency in Colt McCoy to win that game. And I think um, the Saints are going to beat the Cowboys. And I think we're going to have a three-way tie at six and six. Shane, we're down to the wire here. Any game catching? Your well, eye? just in context of our previous conversation, Chargers at Steelers. 
It's gonna, I think game. that's going to be a fantastic game, and it will say a lot about the kind of you know playoff uh, like you know kind of rankings as far as you know things like Pittsburgh's chance for the buy and stuff like that. I actually, I'm I'm going to actually say it's it's Pittsburgh at home. I'm going to actually take Pittsburgh in that one, I, even though the I Chargers agree. are playing very well right now. So the line is three and a half for what it's worth. Massey Peabody has it at minus two. So there's not much of an mm-hmm. edge there. You guys, um, the slate does look good. This is the time of year where NFL really heats up. We've got some interesting college football going on, but Sundays are looking good as well. That has been another show, another two hours with Wharton Moneyball. Many thanks to the crew here, Daniel Bruno on the soundboard, Matty Dots holding down the big the big board and the phone and keeping us all on track. From Cade Massey, Eric Bradlow, Shane Jensen, from the departed Audie Weiner in the classroom, many thanks for listening. Hope you'll come back and join us next week. Between now and then, Enjoy your sports. For more insight from Business Radio, please visit businessradio.wharton.upenn.edu.